All right. If I sound a little stuffy, that's because I am. And if I blow snot out my nose, you don't get to laugh. No, you can. It's okay. Uh, I want to celebrate something with you this morning. <coughs> Last week, uh, well, I guess it's been two weeks now, I think, has it? Luke, where are you? I know you're in here somewhere. The reason that they're cheering is uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we weren't sure if Luke would remain on the earth with us, but uh, we prayed and uh, God had mercy on us <laughs> and on Luke. And so Luke sits here with us this morning to celebrate and honor God. So let's give an, a hand to God for... There's a passage in the scripture where Paul says, he talks about, I think it's Epaphroditus, nearly dying, but God sparing Paul grief upon grief, and God has spared me grief upon grief. I'm glad that Luke is with us today. But there's a lot of stuff going around, and uh, I've got it, and um, you know we've heard of a lot of illness going on in the church, so we're just going to take a moment and pray, and then we're going to dive into the word. Would you join me? Lord, we come before you this morning. Lord, in need of your, your hand upon us in every way, from our physical bodies, Lord, struggling with illnesses and uh, Lord, with, with all kinds of issues, but God, also just for our own souls. Lord, we're in need of your forgiveness. We're in need of your grace and mercy. God, I pray that your spirit would be moving in power as we look at your word today. God, that you would be bringing security and assuredness through the power of your spirit. God, that your spirit would be moving amongst us. God, that we wouldn't just be attending church to check a box, but we would be gathering together to hear your word, to connect with you further, deeper, to know who you are and to know your heart for us. God, I pray you would stir each heart as we examine the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in two days, I'm going to be boarding a plane, Lord willing, and the crick don't rise, for South Africa. Uh, I haven't been there in several years with uh, the COVID stuff that has gone on. You know, a lot of the international travel has subsided. I'm looking forward to that. I really would appreciate your prayers. I'm going to hit the ground running as soon as I land there. I've got, uh, I'll be, and then I'll be preaching the following Sunday in a church in a town called Harding, and just got a number of things planned. I'd appreciate your prayer during that time, looking to re, um, re-engage with the mission field internationally. We believe that's a really important part of what God has for us, so I would appreciate that. But I'm going to be wrapping up a series today called The End. And we've been talking about biblical prophecy and how it pertains to the return of Christ and Not really with the idea that we're going to solve all the riddles, that we're going to prognosticate and determine exactly what's going to happen. We don't know. But we know that God has given us his word for a reason, and it's to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us keep the faith and remain strong in difficult times. And so when we examine these words of prophecy and we consider the possibility of their meanings, we want to do so with an openness to what God wants to do. I think that to get too rigid in our ideas about what the future is, is detrimental to the church. God didn't give us his word so that we could perfectly determine the future. He gave us his word as a whole to encourage and strengthen us and lead us as we go along through life. 
As we look forward to his return, we can say for certain, according to the scripture, that Jesus returns for his church, for his people. We can stand firm in that. And no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter how the the end of time unfolds, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's a thousand years from now, we know that we can trust our God. And that's the purpose of his word, to know him and to remain focused on him. And so when times get chaotic, sometimes we start to hear about, oh, it's the end. Such and such is the Antichrist. Oh, that's the mark of the beast. This is the great tribulation. Listen, Jesus could return at any moment. We don't know when. And we look at the prophecies of scripture and say, there's a possibility these could be fulfilled even. And there's a possibility that not. The scripture has a lot of depth to it. And there's mystery as well. And we have to resolve to be okay with the fact that God is at the steering wheel of the universe, not us. And so we look at these things with an openness. An open-mindedness, open in our hearts. God, you lead us step by step. If the time comes that we need to see very clearly some of these things in our reality, then we trust that you will show us when the time is here. But I think to determine hard and fast doctrines based on biblical prophecy is not not necessarily wise. We saw that the Jews did that about Jesus and then they couldn't accept him as Messiah because he didn't fit their idea of the prophetic fulfillment. And so we have to be cautious as well when we interpret biblical prophecy. If you have not been in participation with these messages, you're going to want to go back and listen online. Our messages are all online. You can watch them. You can listen to them uh, through our podcast, uh, those kinds of things. So I'm going to assume some knowledge of previous messages at this point. I want to touch on three things very briefly today. (coughs) I hope you'll forgive me for coughing and hacking while I'm up here from time to time. Hopefully I'll keep my voice. That'll be the main thing. Because I really believe this is important. I don't think it's important to determine exactly what the future holds. I think it's important that God's people remain grounded, steadfast in truth, not tossed to and fro. Being Bereans, like I encouraged you last week, we looked at the Bereans. What did they do? They investigated to see if everything Paul said was true. And so we're we're inundated in information from from media, from internet, from all kinds of sources. People outside the church, people inside the church. We we look to people, you know, God set up the church with an order and an authority in it, and yet we give authority to things that are outside of the church's design. And we have to be cautious when we're taking in information. We want to be Bereans. We want to look at the scripture. And when it comes to this end times things, we do so with a significant amount of humility and openness. The first thing I want to talk about, perhaps you've heard of the Great Tribulation. Anybody? How many of you grew up in the 80s scared of the Tribulation? Am I the only one, really? Come on. Yep. (laughs) Or before. We're not scared. Yeah, good. 
What is the great tribulation? Where does this communication come from? Perhaps you've seen stuff on the internet. Perhaps you grew up understanding something about it. First, I want to talk about what tribulation is. It's just suffering. It's testing. It's times of difficulty. We know in a general sense that for Christians, life is going to be difficult. Jesus promised us that we would have suffering and tribulation and difficulty in this life. There is no time that's an exception of that. There will always be challenges for us as believers. But in, in some circles, this, there's the idea that there will be a seven-year period of a great tribulation right before Jesus comes. So where does this idea of a great tribulation come from? So we know that morality is going to continue to decrease, and we see that playing out in our own reality. We see that Christians will continue to be persecuted. We've been blessed where we live, but uh, to the church in China and other places like that, they're very familiar with the concept of tribulation and difficulty and persecution. Those things are true. But there's also an idea that based out of a couple of different passages of scripture, and I'm just going to tell, I'm just going to do a lot of talking. I got a lot of ground to cover this morning because I want to just brush on these subjects. But, you know, we talked about the Olivet Discourse is what it's called. It's when Jesus is teaching his disciples and they're, they, they just, Jesus just proclaimed all these woes against the Jews and they're just leaving the temple and the disciples say, look at this awesome temple. And Jesus is like, there ain't going to be nothing left. And his disciples come to him. And they say, when will this happen? And what will be the signs of the end of the age? And you're coming. And so he begins teaching them about when the, when the temple's going to be destroyed, but there's also possibly some clues in there for other future fulfillment. It depends on what you believe. The, the church is very divided about whether or not the Olivet Discourse has been completely fulfilled because we know that in 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed by the Romans. And so there's at least some fulfillment there that we see in what Jesus had to say, but some of it, perhaps there's future meaning in it as well. And we know that the Bible actually does that. We see fulfillments over and over and to greater degrees. We see it in Christ. We see that even Adam was a type of Christ. Or that Moses was a type. Abraham was a type. David was a type. They're all foreshadowing of the actual Christ that would come. And so we know that the scripture teaches that. So we would look at biblical prophecy, understanding that at times that's true. So Jesus talks about, he, he says, there will, there's never been a time of suffering like it. And never will they be again. He's, in fact, no one would survive if God didn't intervene. Well, we know that with the destruction of Jerusalem, I'll tell you a little bit about it. What happened is there was a war seven years long between Rome and Jerusalem. The Jews were always giving Rome trouble, they, and, and this is in 70 AD, so Jesus is gone, Christianity is starting to spread throughout the world, and the Jews rebel against the Romans. And the Romans march on Jerusalem, it takes several years, they lay siege to Jerusalem, right at Passover, all the Jews from the country are coming into Jerusalem, and then Rome traps all of the Jews in Jerusalem, and starves them for months. And then after a while, they finally start breaking down the walls of Jerusalem. They start breaking in. There's cannibalism taking place because they're starving to death. And then the army begins to destroy. And the wrath of Rome falls upon Jerusalem. And in many people's minds, this is the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon the Jews for ultimately rejecting Christ and disobeying God throughout all their history. And in fact, uh, well, I'll read some things here. Josephus, who was a a historian at the time, 
he wrote a number of things about it. This is just a fascinating study. You should, you should Google it and read about it and watch some of the videos about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's fascinating. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any had there remained any other work to be done. Titus Caesar gave the orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, and they did. They left only three towers standing in Jerusalem. Some of the history says that they took seven hundred, they took they, they identified all the men, 17 and older. They took 700 of them back to Rome to fight in the gladiator pits, and they killed the rest, all of them. Now, in many ways, that does fit the picture of what Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse. So many believe that that prophecy is fulfilled in the destruction of Rome. And the Jews never again had a homeland. There never was a city. You know, the city was wiped out until 1948. Israel became a nation again. Nearly 2,000 years went by, no nation of Israel. The Jews have not been able to practice their religion since that day when Titus destroyed the temple and everything in it. It was a horrific, horrific scene. But in the book of Daniel, we have to talk about that for a minute. And again, we could go weeks and weeks talking about this stuff. But many look at the book of Daniel and they, they see 70 weeks of wrath of God being poured out on the Jews. And there's many ways to calculate it. It's really interesting to look at. But some believe that there's one week left that's unfulfilled. Seven days correlating with seven years. And so they would say that, well, that wasn't the seven-year Roman war. There's still a seven-year fulfillment to be had on Israel. The wrath of God to be poured out. And so they would say there's still a seven-year tribulation to come. And so there gets to be a lot of diversity of views and interpretation. And if, you're, if you study this stuff, you know there's lots and lots of different views. And I'm not here to really make one of them firm or not firm because I don't think any of them are. They all have merit to them. They're all interesting and good to study. The point being that no matter what happens, we have a rock-solid faith upon the rock, no matter what happens. But just so that you understand, many anticipate that the, end of the, end of the return of Christ is preceded by a seven-year time of tribulation. I want to talk about something else as well that I want you to think about and study and research if you're interested. And it's something called the rapture. How many of you have heard of the rapture? <clears throat> There's a concept, and the, the, the rapture is a real thing. I want to begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. It says, and we've looked at this passage a number of times. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel. I can't read that, so I'm going to go over here. There we go. Thank you. With the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's that word, raptured. Okay, those that are alive. So when Jesus returns... Trumpet sounds. Jesus is returning to the earth. Those that are believers that are alive at the time will be caught up, will somehow be mysteriously transformed into our 
eternal state in an instant, caught up with Christ as he returns, along with the dead in Christ rising. In the clouds to meet him, to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. So the idea of rapture comes from this. There's this moment in time upon the return of Jesus when those that are believers and alive on the earth, they basically evaporate into their next phase. <laughs> they, they step into their eternal bodies. They're just like the resurrected dead, just like Jesus when he was resurrected into his eternal body. That's the idea of this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. All right. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to this. I really am. This life is temporary. This body is temporary. We don't have it forever. Thank God. We have a faith for something more and a future, a better hope than what we live in now. But why is this something we need to discuss? Okay, great, Jared. Jesus returns and the the dead raise and they're with Jesus and the believers go to be with Jesus as well. Great. Let's keep reading. I'm going to look at uh, Luke chapter 17. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I actually see this phrase several times in scripture. I only bring it up at this point to show you that there's this idea that in that moment, there'd be two people side by side. And one will be taken, one will be caught up. Now, some people connect this to this idea of the rapture. In that moment upon his return, the believer will be taken and the unbeliever left. Now, some people would interpret the other way around because it says in the days of Noah, well, God's, you know, the, the people were, the, God's people were left uh, in the ark. And anyway, I don't have time to get into that. This has led to the idea that we will, some people will remain on earth and some people will go to be with Jesus. How many of you watched the Left Behind stuff? Read the books, saw the movie? That's where that idea comes from. That's where they derive that thinking about the end times. Before the 1800s, though, every Protestant denomination, along with the Catholics, agreed that this event would occur upon the return of Christ, based on the passage we just read earlier. It wasn't until the 1800s that a man named John Nelson Darby, who did a lot of biblical translation, and he established a a group called the, I think it was the Elite Brethren or something like that. And he began, he's considered the father of dispensationalism. I don't have time to explain that, but if you know what that means, you know what I'm talking about. And he began to introduce the idea that because the church and the Israel are separate, the church can't be here when the tribulation takes place, and therefore this rapture has to take place before Jesus returns. And so you end up with this concept of pre-tribulation rapture. That's what the left behind stuff was based upon. 
So rather than at the, at the trumpet, Jesus returning and the people catching up with them, they believe in a secret return of Jesus seven years prior to uh, the return of Christ where the church is going to get sucked off the earth. And then this, this antichrist that we talked about last week will rise to power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see, the thing is, when we start getting this far into this conversation, we're building Theory upon theory upon theory upon theory. There's four or five assumptions we have to make before we can even come to those conclusions. And that's where we have to be Bereans. It's where we have to go to the scripture and say, is this accurate? I don't know. Is it possible? It's possible. I think anything's possible. God is mysterious. And the mystery that's woven in his word and the way in which he's taught and illustrated things, I don't think anything will surprise me. (laughs) When we get to the end and we'll look back over it and we'll go, that was amazing how you did that. I never saw that coming. Just like the Jews didn't see it coming. I think we we need to be humble and wise about how we approach this. So when you're thinking about the rapture, here's what I want you to know. I just want you to know that these scriptures are there. And when you're wondering about it, go read them. What do they say? What does it seem like to you? And as you're studying these different theories about how this happens, make sure you verify, because there's a lot of different thoughts about it. There isn't agreement in the church. Do you know only 49% of Protestant pastors believe in a future antichrist? It's not even half, just under half. There's not agreement And that's okay that there's not. Remember, we started out this whole series in Romans 14 about disputable matters. There are disputable matters. There are things we don't know, and we need to be okay not knowing. I want to be sure that I touch on my own heart for this situation. Why, as a shepherd, and watching the absolute heartbreaking division and chaos of the last couple of years, that's been so hard to watch. And so hard to be a part of, and so hard to guide people and lead people through. We have to remain grounded in the word. It is our ultimate foundation upon which we stand. No matter what nation you're a part of, no matter what time or era you live in, no matter how these end times things unfold, whenever they unfold, if they unfold in the way that some people think they even will, we still will always need to remain firmly grounded on the word of God. We should not be divided over something we're speculating about. we're, we're We're his family. We're his children. Gotta keep the heart right. The last thing I want to talk about today and cover, and again, I am not even coming close to doing justice on these subjects. And I think we should examine them and explore them. But the last one is, what I want to talk about is what's called the mark of the beast. And it comes out of Revelation um, chapter 13. Oh my goodness, is J.R. going there, really? Yeah, he is. And John's having this vision. He's been caught up in the spirit. He's seeing things from a spiritual Uh, about the future and and prophetic vision and all these things. And we had talked about the beast and the possible connection with the beast being an antichrist or the antichrist or however that works. And the second beast required all people great, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave 
to receive a mark on their right hand and on their forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is a call for wisdom. Let the one who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and that number is 666. How many of you have heard of this? One time when I was a little kid, I don't think I've ever told anyone this story. <laughs> I was a little kid, probably third grade. I just started hearing some of this kind of stuff and some of the theory. And I was doing a math assignment uh, in my school, and the answer to the math question was 666. Now, I was an A first grader. A plus, man, grades were so important. I don't know what grade I was in. I was somewhere first, second, third grade. But I purposefully wrote the wrong answer. Because I did not want 666 on my paper. Well, I don't think we need to be afraid. I think we need to understand and we need to be asking God. So I want to talk to you about some of the theories or thoughts people have applied to this. But before we even do that, I want to look at what the Bible says about marks. Are there other marks in the Bible? I mean, we interpret, proper interpretation of Scripture requires Scripture. You know, we, we look at overall themes in the Bible, we look at the Scripture says, and then we decide. We don't read into the Scripture what we want it to say. We pull out of it what it actually says. That's what exegesis is. The opposite being eisegesis, reading into it what it doesn't say, making an assumption and making it mean something that it doesn't mean. And again, we're running into something that's a mystery, but we can look at other scriptures. Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Oh wait, the people of God get marks too? Uh, looks like it. There's a ceiling there. There's, there that, that's the idea of this number on the forehead or the hand. So we see that, that God's people are being sealed on their foreheads. And God said to him, this is in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, pass through the city. There's a whole story behind this, but he's talking about, uh, talking about an angel. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, God's saying, go mark my people before you go through here and slaughter everybody. Mark my people first. Mark their forehead. So did all these people walk around Jerusalem before this with a literal mark on their forehead? No. This is a spiritual thing. This is an angel. This is something in the spirit Ezekiel is seeing. The mark is spiritual. God going through and marking his people in Revelation chapter 7 is spiritual. And they will see, this is Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, talking about the 144,000. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion, so he's seeing in the spirit, he's seeing prophetically, stood the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. Is he literally a lamb? I don't know what, Paul, what, what John's seeing here, but he sees Jesus and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Exodus chapter 13, verse 9. This observant will, observance will be for you like a sign. 
on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Again, this idea of God saying this law, this ordinance that shall be on your forehead and your hand, the law of God. You know, symbolism. It Actually, historically, you know, one of the reasons that, I, I don't know if I included the passage in here, but there, in the Old Testament, it talks about not getting tattoos. And so, so you know, a lot of us, you know, or a lot of people grew up in homes where like tattoos were of the devil, right? But the idea was being that uh, if you were a slave, you would be tattooed. It was a sign of shame and ownership by somebody else. And so that, that symbol on the forehead and the hand is a sign of slavery, of being owned by something. And God's saying, these are mine. I own them. They're my people. They're marked on their forehead and their hand. My law shall be a mark on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. Starting to see a connection? So why did John see it like this all these years later at the end of the Bible where he's seeing about this idea of, an, of a beast receiving marks? They're owned by, they're enslaved to, they worship this beast. Let's keep going. Deuteronomy 6, 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall therefore, Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It seems to me unlikely that when the Bible talks about a sign on the hand and the forehead, that it is a literal thing in the natural world. Might be, might be. But when I look at all of the other scriptures that talk about this, it is a sign of ownership, slavery, and worship. So, how does that help us navigate that, this today? It's so crucial that we understand salvation. See, when I was a little kid, I would think like this. Hopefully no one gives me that mark when I'm sleeping. When I was a kid, it was a microchip. If you get the microchip in your hand, that's a sign of the beast. You're definitely going to hell. I'm like, boy, I hope I don't fall asleep and someone does that to me or I'm done. But does that line up with salvation? Does that line up with the understanding of who our God is? It says clearly in Revelation that they worship the beast and the dragon. Okay, this is a sign of worship. So, when you were saved, how were you saved? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. How were we saved? God gave us a gift. We received it by faith. We accepted his mark, if you will. We accepted his gift. Can you lose your salvation? Can you lose that gift? This has been a topic that's been hotly debated all throughout history. Can you lose your salvation? I don't know. But if you can, it can't be that easy. It would have to, I would think that losing your salvation, if it's even possible, would have to come through a deliberate and intentional rejection of God. To say, I no longer worship you. You are no longer my king. 
if it's even possible, I think it would take that extreme of a situation to lose my salvation. So if I somehow fall asleep and wake up with a microchip in my hand, does my, does my eternal destination change? No. No. There has been, you know, fear is the tool of our enemy. Accusation is the tool of our enemy. Do we trust our God to lead us? Do we trust him to teach us as time goes on? Yes. I do not. I think it's possible there will be a literal mark, but I doubt it. John is seeing something in the spirit about those who worship God and those who don't. Whatever it is. Let's talk about this number, though. So back in, there's several different theories about this, um, what it means. Uh, And I want to talk about Nero. Nero was an emperor of Rome. He was the sixth. So when we see that five have been, one is, one is yet to come, sixth emperor, Nero, those kind of things in Revelation. There is, um, you know, we have numbers, okay? Number one. We know what it looks like, right? You all could write the number one. You could write the number two. You could write the number three. They didn't operate that way in these days. Letters correlated to numbers. So the alpha represented one. This would be my name. My real name is John Raphael Quigley the fourth. I have a Roman numeral at the end of my name. I representing one and V representing five. It looks right to me. It's backwards to you. How's that? One before five meaning four. So the letters represent numbers. And it was common to use the letters as numbers to write things so that they could be discerned and calculated to mean something else. Now we have to be careful about this. But this is one of the things. So when John wrote the number of of 666, he doesn't write number six, number six, and number six. They didn't even use numbers like that. The numbers we use today are Arabic and weren't adopted for like 500 more years. They used letters to represent numbers. And he, he actually wrote out the name of the words. He wrote out the word 600, then he wrote out the word 60, and then he wrote out the word 6. And that's how we get the translation 666. But if you transliterate Nero Caesar into the Hebrew, which is Neron Kaiser, and you assign the letter, the numbers to the letters in his name, they all add up to 666. So for a lot of people, this was a very strong encoded message by John to the church that Nero is who I'm talking about. That's what many believe today and at the time. Now, if you're open to your Bibles right now, which I don't see anybody, you're all looking at me, good, you're paying attention. But many have a little subscript there, and it says some transcripts say 616. Now, one of the theories about that is because these letters were going out to the Greek-speaking world, if you take Nero's name and do the same thing in the Greek, guess what it adds up to? 616. So the thought was that it was changed in some of the later manuscripts as it went out to the Greek world because you couldn't just advertise these things about him. Now, let's talk about some other things about Nero. Now, this this isn't from Christian history. This is from Roman history. Guess what the nickname... Of, of Nero was the beast among his contemporaries. He was known as the beast. And what he did is he'd, he'd put on a, like a wolf skin or a bear skin. And they would take these people like the Jews they captured in Jerusalem. And they would 
tie them out in the arena without clothes on, and he would go out there like an animal, and I'm not even going to tell you what he'd do. In the gladiator arena. Horrifying. This is a G-rated service, I can't tell you. Brutal what they did. So for a lot of people, Nero was the Antichrist and the 666 made sense according to his name. Other people would say, well, six is the number of incomplete. It means incomplete on the sixth end. It's the number of man because man was made on the sixth day. But, he, but man isn't God. Seven is perfection. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if this is true. I don't know how much I believe about it. But clearly through the scripture, numbers are significant. And so these three sixes are complete incompleteness. Like opposite of God. Opposite of perfection. What did Satan do? Satan, it, when he was cast out of heaven, why, was, why did, because he rebelled against God, he was going to make himself like God, but he was so inadequate and incomplete. And man, in his rebellion against God, is incomplete. So some people say that, that's what it has to do. It's the, na- it's the number of man and those three, man as God. 666, man putting himself in the place of God. We talked about this last week with the idea of humanism, which I also think is a great theory about the idea that no longer do we worship any God, we worship no God, we are God. And I could see that as the epitome of arrogance and abomination to God himself, that mankind would become so arrogant as to worship himself, to decide his own truth and his own destiny in his own mind. So, anything clearer than it was? (laughs) No, there's lots of different theories and thoughts. It's really interesting And I really have enjoyed studying it. But here's the thing about the mark of the beast. We do not need to be afraid. Whatever it ends up being, or already was. You know, Nero, maybe Nero wasn't the Antichrist. Maybe he was the first fulfillment of that. And maybe there are future fulfillments. Maybe it will come to pass, as some some people theorize. I don't know. What's more important to me and should be more important to us is that God has given us this word and this information so we can remain steadfast and unified in the mission he gave us before he ascended into heaven. Make disciples of all nations. That's our job. Be unified even when you don't agree. That's who we are. To stand firm to the end. John talks about that repeatedly in the book of Revelation. Be firm. Stand firm until the end. I want to wrap up this series by reading to you out of Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 7. As an encouragement to you. Perhaps I leave you today with way more questions than answers. So, if you're curious, keep digging. Keep looking. God wants you to look. He wants you to search. But be careful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Just imagine. Imagine this as I read it to you. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Would you stand? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for all these prophetic words that you've given us to to just, it just draws attention to your profound wisdom, your eternal perspective. God, your intention, your destiny that you have for your people. And we're glad to be a part of it, Lord. So God, we honor you this morning. And God, I pray, just like John said, this calls for wisdom. God, give us wisdom to navigate our time, to, to reach people with hope, with love and compassion, with a grace and a nurturing spirit, a life-giving attitude. God, help us to remain unified and strong in times of difficulty. But above all, God, we trust you. Though you slay me, yet I trust you. God, we trust you no matter what happens. And we're so grateful that then we can rest securely in you because of that that we have nothing to fear because you are in control. We honor you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to remind you that Jason Harris will be hosting Link right over here in the corner room. For those of you that are newer and like to connect further, that's a great opportunity for you. If you'd like to receive prayer, Corrine and Ryan would love to pray for you. Don't miss that opportunity. I will see you in a few weeks when I get home from South Africa. Would appreciate your prayer. We'll see you then.